Hi, this is Braden Holpe. This is Bob Stauffer from the Oilers Radio Network. Hi, this is Brian Burke from Toronto, Ontario. This is Daryl Sutter. Hello, everyone. I'm Carly Agro from Sportsnet Central. This is Jay Onright. This is Quick Dick Quick Dick coming to you from Tufnell, Saskatchewan. Hey, everybody. My name is Steele Fleury. This is Kelly Rudy. This is Corey Cross. This is Wade Redden. This is Jordan Tutu. Hey, it's Ron McLean, Hockey Night in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Hump Day. Uh, this is the final episode of the SNP Summer Tour, that uh, summer road trip we took here this past week. Um, man, it just time flies, and uh, had a blast doing it. And before we get on to today's guests, obviously we got to get to our sponsors, and these three companies stepped up huge uh, to help make it a success. And it starts with Foremost, uh, Lewis Stang, Mike Strelchuk over there. Um, well, I've, I've told the story, but without me sitting and talking to Lewis, this uh, doesn't come to fruition. And a uh, huge shout-out to the boys over there. Uh, they've been a big part of this. And they offer smooth wall grain bins, hopper bottoms, fuel tanks. They're in stock, manufactured locally. They want to ensure you know they are constructed of the highest quality and engineered for a long life. Delivery is free within 300 kilometers of Lloydminster. You can buy at any of their co-op locations, Lloydminster, Lashburn, or Neilberg. For more information, you can check them out on their website, foremost.ca. Really do appreciate uh, them hopping aboard on this and, and being the first company uh, to do it. Uh, they always support local. And a huge shout-out once again to Foremost. Baker Hughes Upstream Chemicals. When you need to improve performance or productivity, your solution often exists in the proper application of specialty chemicals. We offer multiple chemical lines to improve performance use and production. Not to mention we have the best group of guys around. Shout out to all um, the boys. And uh, we'll go above and beyond to ensure you get what you need and answers to all your questions. For all your oil field chemical needs, look to Baker Hughes. Once again, here's a, a group, of, a company that I work for full-time and on the, the side, you know, the after hours I'm doing this and uh, they've been immensely supportive um, just every day uh, all the boys appreciate everybody uh, you know supporting it and and having some laughs and following along and and uh, you know I always go back to a guy like Paul Bissonette who everybody knows biz nasty from spitting chicklets without Mr. Mullet I don't want to get his head too big but without Mr. Mullet doing uh, pushing me I would have never got him and and uh, that has been kind of a theme with a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. Uh, they show, put out a name, and, and if we push it, you just never know where it goes, and, and we've been able to attract a lot of good people. So for the guys over at Baker Hughes, really appreciate the support. Uh, and if you're looking for oil field chemicals, give me a call. Give Baker Hughes a call. We'll get you hooked up. Finally, under uh, Tracy Klotz's direction, Titus Tools is a locally owned business. Uh, he formed in 1997. He's got 40 years experience in the oil industry. And he's a guy that reached out, wanted to help, uh, enjoyed what I've been doing. And so he reached out and heard, uh, you know, about the road trip, wanted to get involved. You know, I walk around his, his office and, and, you know, have seen, you know, the Andrew Mavericks have talked a lot about that or on the walls, a bunch of Brandy Hofer's uh, paintings. And you just see that he, he, he bleeds Lloyd Minster, bleeds, uh, community um, talent and so a huge shout out to uh, Tracy and his team over at Titus Tools for hopping on this and and helping make this happen uh, if you're interested in any, finding anything more out about Titus Tools make sure you head over to TitusTools.com and if you're heading into any of these businesses please let them know you heard about them on here it helps them uh, know people are listening it helps me all right uh, if you're interested in advertising on the show, visit SeanNewmanPodcast.com in the top right corner. Hit the contact button, me, send me, uh, contact button and send me your information. Uh, put in a little blurb what you're looking for or uh, if you got an idea. Uh, we got lots of different options, and I want to find something that could work for the both of us. Now, let's get on to your T-Bar 1 tale of the tape. Originally from Looseland, Saskatchewan, he was born in 1928, making him 91 years young. In 1961, he opened his first car dealership. Fast forward to today, and he didn't miss a single day of work due to COVID-19. He doesn't drink, swear, and loves classic cars. has been married to his wife, Mary, for 69 years. The Jim Pattison Group owns, get this, 
25 car dealerships, Overwaddy Foods, Save-On Foods, Quality Foods, Ripley's, believe it or not, Guinness World Records, 43 radio stations and 3 TV stations, not to mention Pattison Agriculture at 19 locations. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. On May 30th, 2017, Pattison and the Jim Pattison Foundation announced they were donating $50 million to the largest private donation in Saskatchewan history to the new Children's Hospital of, Sa- of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. The man is extremely successful and extremely humble. I am talking about Mr. Jim Pattison. So buckle up. Here we go. My name is Jim Pattison, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. First off, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me, sir. It is an absolute honor. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming out. Uh, we're always glad to see people from Saskatchewan <laughs> come out to see us. So, Well, I did the, the Mr. Pattison thing, and, and we drove. I believe that's something you do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I uh, Well, when I go to Saskatchewan, I prefer to drive because you can... You can uh, go to all the small towns, which is much easier by by a car or truck than it is by airplane. Do you have a fear of flying? Are you no, not at no. all? No, we fly all the time. You know, sitting here looking out over this beautiful view, um, at, when I first came in, I thought, gee. Uh, it's going to be interesting to go back to the humble beginning because I've read your story. Uh, it comes from humble beginnings. I thought maybe we could start there and, and talk a little bit about uh, growing up in Saskatchewan. I mean, it was very brief. You moved out here at a young age, but do you have any um, memories of Saskatchewan growing up? I got a lot of memories because um, my parents sent me back to work on the, uh, the homestead uh, out of Major Saskatchewan, which is where my mother came from. And uh, so I went back there every year and worked on the farm because my parents didn't think I'd, I needed, I, they thought that unless you worked on a farm and, and uh, understood how the world works that uh, you never mocked anything. So anyway, I went back in the early days, year, year after year and worked on the family farm in major Saskatchewan. How, how did you get back there back then? Did you... Uh, train. Train? By yourself? As uh, Many times by myself. So Some, Once in a while, my dad would drive uh, drive me back. How, how old would you have been when they were sending you back? Well, I was... Uh, the, uh, my first recollection would be, you know... 12, 13, something like that. Times have certainly changed then. You, lots of people wouldn't uh, send a 12 or 13-year-old back on yeah. a train by themselves. Well, they, well, it, as I said, my dad drive me back uh, and or go on a train. But uh, they had, uh, they had uh, good confidence in me, and I was reliable, so it worked out okay. What lessons did working on the farm back then teach you? Well, I'll tell you, I learned about milking cows. <laughs> there was no machines in those days. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, I learned to ride a horse. I used to go get the mail when the train came in once a week. I'd get on the horse and go to town, get the mail. and So anyway, I learned I learned certainly a lot about the the real world and farming from from my my parents and my and my uncle and who who was running the old homestead. You know, you're born in '28, and uh, World War II rages on from the '40s, uh, '40 to '39, 39 to to roughly '45. Um, do you have any memories of those years? Oh, I certainly do. Uh, the war years was we used to listen to to Churchill from England on shortwave first thing in the morning when we got up 
I can still take you to the house here in Vancouver. We paid $25 a month rent furnished. And the first thing in the morning, we get up and listen to the news, you know, from uh, from England of the of what was happening. And I always remember Winston Churchill speaking often in the mornings. And uh, that was Vancouver time. And uh, so, no, we were certainly... Uh, and of course, we I joined the cadets and and uh, was getting ready to go into the army. The time I got out in 1945, I was in training to go into uh, the army. You were in training to go. Well, in? I mean, not by the army, but in in school, grade 11, grade 12, I was in the in the in the band because I was going to go into the band when I went into the army because I was running a high school band. And we all had army uniforms and stuff like that. Was were those nervous times? No, I don't think so. the The war was serious business, but you know, when you're a teenager, you always are optimistic. At least I found most of the people I dealt with were. It's uh, it's slowly fa- the the stories of uh, those years are slowly or maybe quickly fading away. So I find it very interesting to hear a person talk um, about those years because you, you you got to see things firsthand. And- oh yeah, no, but the uh, you know we had uh, uh, my dad would would go on uh, saving go out door to door and raise money, you know, for savings bonds, war savings bonds. And uh, they had campaigns, and they'd have teams of people to go out and sell victory bonds, is what we called them. And I was going to school, but I remember my dad, it wasn't a full-time job, but he had a full-time job. But in addition to that, he'd go out and sell victory bonds door-to-door. Did When did you first start... Uh your, your career in sales? Oh, heck, My I started when I was probably seven going door-to-door selling garden seeds, flower seeds, garden seeds, door-to-door, and then I got a job after that selling the Saturday Evening Post door-to-door, you know, subscriptions, yeah. uh, Ladies' Home Journal. And then after that, I got a paper route. And so was it, was I've it, worked all my life, actually. Was it was it uh, something out of necessity you started selling and you were just good at it, or was it something you witnessed and were well, like? Well, I knew if I wanted a bike, I was going to have to make money to to buy a bike. Yeah. Or as time went by, but but uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't own a house or anything like that. But uh, anyway, uh, I've always I used to sell garden seats door to door, and then. Then we got into the to the magazine subscriptions. Then I had a newspaper route. Then I worked delivering groceries for a Chinese grocer at just between 26th and 25th on Main Street. And uh, so I've always I've always worked as far as I can recall, and I always liked what I did. Is this uh, this COVID nineteen slowdown when everything locked up? I assume uh, you were stuck at home for a little bit, probably oh, no. for the first never time. Been, no, I've never been home. I've come been to work every day. Every day? Every day. Never missed a day. Really? No. Not, uh, doesn't concern you then? No. Well, it concerns you. I mean, it concerns you, but... But I've never, it doesn't stop me coming to work. Interesting. So. You know, I've I found... Uh, in reading about you and watching different things, I find your leadership leadership style very, I would think, easy to follow because you lead by example at all times. Well, if uh, you like what you do, it's not hard to do. You know, I like what I do, so I don't really consider it work. <laughs> That's why at uh, ninety one, you're still going. You're right. I still am, thank the good Lord, my health yeah. is good, so I'm very grateful for that. You've never hit a point where you, you, you touch on it, I guess, that it's fun. And most people, I suppose, don't have a job they uh, view the same way. But you've never hit a point where 
you know, lots of people at 55, 60, 65 hit a point where they're just like, you know what? I think I want to go this way instead. Well, I've never crossed that that road. I've always, of course, when I got into business, I always had lots of, I always had debt, so I needed to go to work because I got to pay my bills, you know, so <laughs> I'm still doing that. We still owe the banks money, so I'm still going to work to make sure we can make our payments, you know. <laughs> how about uh, how about Mary? You've been married for 69 years? Yeah, I've been married. got married in 19... I got married in... Six, I got married in 51. So I've been married... There it is. 15, 69 years. I've been married 69 years. And uh, I'm still married, and uh, same wife, and we've had a good, <laughs> good life. What uh, you talked before uh, we started, I must have picked a good one to move her from Minneapolis out to Hillmont, Saskatchewan. Uh, how did you and Mary meet? Because in the met at a children's camp in Swift Current. Uh, it was a apostolic church camp. Uh, which is an organization in Saskatchewan, uh, a church organization. That's mo- it was mostly in Saskatchewan at that time, Manitoba and Alberta. There was a couple churches out here. But anyway, I met at a ch- children's camp at 13 where her parents sent me, sent her to and her sister to a church children's camp in Swift Current. Uh, I think it was called... I think it was called 17 Mile Bridge. It was a camp 17 miles out of Swift Current. And uh, and so I met my wife there when we were 13 and kept in touch all those years. You living in Vancouver and her living out in Moose Jaw. Right. What was it at 13 and moving forward that you just knew? Well, you, you didn't. I mean, it just, uh, we met then and we corresponded and then... And then uh, later on, three or four years later, I went down playing my trumpet at church camps in the summer, along with another fellow that was a really good violin player. And he and I went to these different camps playing our instruments. And so I I saw her again there. And we wrote letters back and forth occasionally. And so eventually, we that all turned out okay. Did you date her then? Or... No, I just kept in touch with her. They didn't date anybody at that age. <laughs> I kept in touch, and I I know I got stranded and uh, up. I was up in Nippon, and I didn't I ran out of money, and I had this car, and uh, so I I uh, phoned my wife and told her I was broke, and uh, she talked to her father and and sent me some money like. $20 or something to get some gas so I could move forward until I could get some more money. So anyway, she kept me alive there for a few few days. <laughs> what were you doing in Nippon? Oh, I was playing my trumpet. There's, uh, there's two of us at, a, at church camps and stuff up in Nippon at the Apostolic Church up there. And you had stranded playing the trumpet? You were paying your way then? Yeah, we paid our way. And and uh, this other guy and I they played it these different uh, church camps, and they would help us along from time to time. So did that one summer. What did, and, you do? what did your future father-in-law think of having to fork over some I cash? Never, I never discussed it with him, and uh, all I know is that she sent, me, sent the money and kept me kept gas in the car for this other guy, Vern McClellan, who was really a top-notch musician. And uh, so anyway, we got along fine. She flies to Vancouver, and you propose along those lines, correct? That's correct. Well, I, yes, I did. That well, that uh, that was later on. That was when she was. We would, she'd probably be twenty-one or twenty-two, something like that. So you guys, up until twenty-one, twenty-two, when she flies to Vancouver, you're keeping in correspondence with the odd letter. Yeah, we we uh, corresponded. I. Saw her once or twice. She, her, she and her mother and her sister came to Vancouver once or twice, and I saw her when she came out here. 
But uh, we didn't keep in touch uh, on a regular basis, uh, you know, face-to-face or anything, and we didn't write uh, consistently, so. But we got along fine when we, when we met, so it worked out okay. The reason I keep digging on it is I just think today's standard, you date someone and you date them for a extended period of time. You might even want to move in with them and kind of get the lay of the land, understand yeah. that you can, yeah. you know, like, yeah. oh, this is a person yeah. I want to spend, you know. And, yeah. well, and sometimes things, that doesn't even yeah, work. Yeah, things were very different then. This was, you know, this is, what, 60, 70 years ago now. Uh, yeah, that's what yeah. fascinates yeah. about me. She flies out and you've been corresponding. Well, I, uh, I've been corresponding and uh, I asked her to come out and, and, uh, and so she came out and, so anyway, I decided to. I did. Uh, I heard she was going to get, she was going to get engaged to somebody. So I heard that. So I, I always liked her, but I hadn't been in touch with her for a couple of years. So anyway, it all worked out okay. You heard she was getting engaged out in Vancouver. Yeah, a friend of mine, the best man at my wedding, who, in when we went to got married, Musha told me he heard Mary was, was going to get engaged to somebody and so I thought well, I hadn't talked to her for a couple of years or so so anyway I got I phoned her up and it all worked out fine well 69 years later I guess yeah. so yeah she's been along for uh, quite the journey now yeah yeah she's uh she was 92 in uh August in in uh in August yeah just this month I want to go back to your cleaning cars on a train and you quit on the spot and get stranded out in British Columbia. Does that ring a bell? It certainly does. I got <laughs> off the train at Lytton. Lytton, that's right. Yeah. What, uh, why not just work a couple more days and get back home? Well, because the train, there was a big flood in 1948. And the highways, including the railways, were washed out. The bridges were washed out. And the railways, the CP, I was working as a pantryman on the dining car for CP rail. And they couldn't get, I was on the Vancouver-Calgary uh, run. And the train couldn't get back to Vancouver because the bridge got washed out. And they told us, the crew that we were going to get going to go run from Minneapolis to Moose Jaw for the rest of the summer oh. and I didn't want to do that so I got off the train at Lytton on its way back to go work out, off out of the prairies and so I and uh, so I got off the train and uh, eventually got back to Vancouver and got a job selling used cars well before you get to selling used cars you've done something as a kid i've always wondered about you hopped on a train in the middle of the night and laid flat down right what what was i was was... scared to death it was a flat car on a on a train uh, yes freight a freight train and uh it was going through Lytton, and uh it and the railway tracks going from uh, Lytton to Kamloops, a lot of it's on the river, right on, right by the river, and and I was scared to death. I laid flat on my stomach with my hands and legs out, so I wouldn't roll off the flat car because the r- railway was right on the Thompson River. Yeah, and I was scared to death. But anyway, it was I got to I got to Kamloops and and eventually got home and. So that all worked out okay, too. <laughs> you know, as the trains roll by, I'm sure I'm not the only one that could say, man, I wonder what it would be like just to hop on one of those things and take it for a spin. <laughs> well, I had, the alternative was that, uh, was I had to, I was on my way to Minneapolis, and I didn't want to do that. So. What, was, what was the first car you, well, actually, you start by being the wash bay guy, the the lot kid. Yeah, I did it. Seventh and uh, Camby. That's all right. 
for Fred Richmond Motors. I got a, I applied for a job as a used car salesman, and uh, Mr. Richmond said, I don't need a salesman. I, we only have one, and I'm happy with him. But what we need is a washboy. And uh, if you want to be a washboy, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, if you want to be a washboy, I'll let you speak to a customer as long as Art Davenport, the one salesman we have, is not on the lot, or if he's out demonstrating a car and a customer comes on, I'll allow you to speak to the customer. Otherwise, you have to wash cars full-time. I said So I said, I'll take the job. And that's how I got started. And uh, by golly, as it turned out, the first week, I'd uh, managed to sell a car or two when Art Davenport, the one salesman, was off the lot. So then they offered me a job selling used cars full-time, and that's how I got in the car business. That's uh, that's some pressure, right? Well, well anyway, it all turned, <laughs> thank the good Lord, it all turned out okay. Well, I'm always, I'm always interested in, back then, what... What did you do different? Did you do anything different than other people? Because I'm sure there was other... No, everybody. Everybody was days, grinding and trying to get... Everybody, I don't know. Everybody, we all went to school. None of us, fam, families had what you call money. Everybody was worked for a living. And and uh, uh, there, was, there was not a lot of prosperity at that time in the world like there is today. And uh, we didn't come. All everybody where I lived was a working class family. We all went to school and did our stuff. Everybody helped uh, part time or full time, whatever job you could get. And you became very, very, very good at selling cars. Uh, I got uh, it. It. I got a job selling used cars there, and then later on, I sold cars on Kingsway, where all the big used car dealers were and I did well there and then I sold cars when I went to UB University I bought and sold used cars and advertised it in the university paper or the classified ads in the Sun and Province and I worked my way through school doing was, that was that was that something other students were doing that, that one is interesting I, to me I don't recall any uh, um, people doing that selling but I had been, my dad sold you sold cars and in Saskatchewan and, and in uh, Vancouver. And so, and I liked cars, so it wasn't hard for me to do that. Yet in, in college or university, you're spending a decent amount of money to get a car to put it on. Yeah, and but I financed it. I, I bought a car, put the financing on it, drove it to UBC, advertised it, and sold it. And then I'd get another one, and that's what I did, and that's how I worked my way through school, buying and selling cars. You know, you bring up advertising, and uh, once again, in reading your book, if there's something that I was very impressed with is how much advertising you do. I know you own advertising companies, but in anything you did, uh, you always advertised above and beyond. It's what got us here today was was advertising what I uh, was was doing, which was selling used cars or new cars, and uh, advertising was the basis of of uh, a lot of the good things that happened to me. It was was came through advertising, and to, in. And I understood that you have to differentiate yourself by something to get people to call advert to to respond to an ad. So, advertising has always uh, has always been of interest to me over the years. Well, you have in Lloyd Minster. Uh, I've stared at the Patterson name bar. Oh, well, actually, wherever I go, and here it's it's interesting. You know, now that. You, you know, you're looking around and driving through Vancouver, you see it everywhere. But um, back home, it was just a name, right? He didn't really think much of it. And uh, it's pretty impressive to me how far your name has gone. Like, you are worldwide. 
Well, I don't think we are that respect, but we certainly we're we're leaders in the billboard business, and we have twenty seven or eight car dealerships now, and we got. And I think in Western Canada we have forty seven radio stations, and and so you know we got uh, we're in the advertising business. And all those businesses you go and visit personally? We have meet with them on a regular basis, the management of all these, everything we're involved in, we try to meet with them. Well, we meet with them five times a year, um, and except for COVID, the, what we're going through now, uh, and we're doing a lot of it through Zoom and stuff like that. Yeah, today. yeah, yeah. How do you enjoy that? Would you rather... Uh, oh, I'd rather be face-to-face than Zoom, but Zoom is better than the telephone. Absolutely. can no, see no, the person. Zoom, no, Zoom is good compared to the alternative. When did you decide, was that always something you wanted to do, was uh, um, see all these different businesses? Or was that a no, conscious no. choice and a change? No, it just came by one step at a time. My objective was to be, was to get, uh, to be a used car salesman would be my original objective. And because uh, I liked cars, and uh, and my dad was in uh, in the car business, and and uh, so anyway, cars. And then I got into advertising. From advertising, we got into radio, and radio, we got into billboards and electric signs, and and into the and into cars and all the stuff we're into now. Small steps, almost. I mean, they're big well, steps. But, no, but one step at a time. Yeah, but, build But the difference was that, that I struck out into uh, industries I didn't know anything about, like the food business. And and, uh, th- and then we got into other types of businesses that are very significant with us today. I'm curious about that. What attracted you to things you had no clue about? Uh, maybe the what we thought was undervalued. If we saw something that we thought was was something that uh, was undervalued, we'd buy buy it, then learn about it. You know, as time went by, made a lot of mistakes over the years. My goodness, all the mistakes I made. Well, one way, one that uh, we've always tried to be honest. That's the main thing. What built our company was always being honest, tell the truth, and try to do the right thing, you know. Yeah, I respect that about you immensely. I think that's that's uh, something you can easily get on board with. Yeah, well, if you do the right thing, usually it pays off, you know. There's no shortcut, usually. In going after things you didn't know anything about, uh, you must have to surround yourself with very good people, I assume. Well, as time goes by, we it's all people. The quality of the people is everything. As the company grows, it, it's, uh, it's all selection of quality people. That's the job. Number one job is the quality people that, that we work with. So are you saying then if you see a business and the business looks okay, the next step is the people, or is the first thing people and then if you well, you've got to understand, the bit, today, the looking at a business is very different than it did 25 years ago. For example, we're much more interested in the environment. Uh, businesses that are environmentally friendly are very uh, the top of our list. Uh, 25 years ago, we never considered about things like the importance of the environment like we do today. And uh, so there's, as the world changes and as knowledge changes, we're obviously changing our priorities too. You strike me as a man who loves to learn. <laughs> well, the world keeps changing, and if you don't keep changing with it, you, you, you won't be in business uh, very long. That's, that's one thing I've learned. As the world keeps ch- things that used to be very good today aren't, aren't nearly as, as, as attractive as what's coming down the road 
next. I want to ask about Maureen Chant. Chant? Chant. C-H-N-T. Chant. Yes. Uh, she's been with you. I was just talking to her. And uh, uh, without her, I don't think I get to you. And so, when, A, she's a, an exceptionally nice lady. But two, she's been working with you a very, very long time. See, I think Maureen has been with me 57 years. I think if we, I think we've been in business 59 years now. And uh, Maureen's been with me 57. We started in a gas, three-pump gas station together. And uh, I didn't hire her. A, a fellow that worked there hired her, and then, and then uh, she was in the parts department. Then she got into, uh, she became the sw- night switchboard operator, then the day switchboard operator. Then she went to work in the service department, and then I put her in the advertising department. So she's been around the company a long time. That's uh... and a big, a big contributor to where we are today. Well, I was going to say that, you know, throughout your book, she comes up a lot and in some interesting roles. I, I said to her walking in, I said, she might be the interviewer. Maybe she should have just stayed in her office because yeah. <laughs> she's done um, uh, some immensely important jobs for you over time. She has, and she knows the company inside out over the years and of course as you said earlier it's the quality of the people that make the company and the bigger we get uh, the more uh, t- the more important it is that we we hire quality people and marina has always been very much involved in in helping decide who we have run our various divisions over the years. Yeah, some some trust with the yeah. quality that you build that. And uh, and her her judgment on uh, on uh, on people is very very excellent, and uh, and so she's carved a role out here over the years, and and her ability to judge the quality of the people that are new coming into the company. She's been a huge. Uh, help to us and to to me over these many years. I want to talk about one of your, um, I don't know if you call it mistakes or, but the Vancouver Blazers, you're, you're, you're entering into the, <laughs> the WHA. Yes. Well, yeah. you know me, I, I'm missing teeth. I'm a hockey player yeah. at heart. Uh, <laughs> I find yeah. the WHA was before my time. Yeah. Uh, would you enlighten me with some stories of owning a WHA franchise? Yeah, well, it's a headache from day one. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it was two people uh, that created that league. Uh, one was out of Winnipeg, and the other was Bill Hunter out of Edmonton. And those guys were really, they were really hockey guys. And anyway, uh, they they came to me and talked about getting in the hockey business, and there was a, a team that was of interest. And so anyway, uh, and then Toronto, one of the Bassett fellows got into the business. They, they were a high-quality family in Toronto, and they got in the business. So, so anyway, bottom line is we thought we'd try it. And so we were in the hockey, got in the hockey business, and uh, unsuccessful. We were in Vancouver for two years, and we moved the team to Calgary, and uh, and anyway, it was a good experience. It cost us some money, uh, but uh, we certainly learned a lot. We have, in fact, at one time, we owned the, the AAA baseball team here in Vancouver, and I sold it to Molson's. And uh, so we had, uh, we've had a shot at the, at the sports business. Very, very uh, interesting, fun, but, uh, we were unable to make any serious money at it, so. So you you've never ventured back into. We have once we sold the baseball team here. We haven't gone back into the the uh, sports business. You wrote in your book that the the WHA owners meetings were more entertaining than a than a nightclub. Oh, absolutely. Going to one of those meetings with, uh, I don't they called them governors or what they called them. Anyway, the, it was the owners of these meetings. Uh, 
I mean, you'd never, you, the best movie in town wouldn't be as good as going to those meetings because these people were sports guys and they were dealing with money and most of the course the league wasn't doing that well and it was very entertaining and and uh, unprofitable <laughs> maybe what's one of the you you say entertaining and and what was one of the things that stuck out to you about a, a an owners meeting back then oh heck everything was about uh the league and and how could you keep the teams in cleveland alive or san diego a wha team you know and and of course, the owners there were struggling for money. But you got to have, if you're going to have a league, you got to have teams. And the teams, uh, like Edmonton, was doing fine, and uh, and uh, other places were doing okay. But meantime, you had to have other places. Like Winnipeg did fine, but uh, down in uh, in San Diego, it was uh, going tough going to keep the teams. So you had. So anyway, it was very interesting. I remember it very well. Met some great people, and uh, it was it was fun but expensive. <laughs> you're you're an entertainer. You're a, a guy who is high energy, finds ways to motivate people, bring people in. In the WHA days, what what did you uh, what did you do to try and attract people to come to a, a Vancouver's Blazers game or a Calgary Calgary Cowboys game? Was there oh heck, we had we did what we we did uh, uh, advertise uh, with what we would normally do, but uh, people you know they people liked hockey. We would out here in Vancouver. My recollection, we averaged about seven thousand people a game, and uh, the Canucks would be sold out at fifteen thousand or so a game, and. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was an education. I read that you once almost bought the Toronto Maple Leafs. Is that true? That is true. We actually had a we actually had a written contract, and uh, and through the due diligence, we did not uh, we did not close the deal because the uh, the auditors uh, discovered some things that we didn't think were uh, something we wanted to buy. Do you wish now you you had a, no, a hockey franchise? No, 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 it was fine. It all we focused on other things. You said you can't. Uh, sticking with sports, you said you can't envision a worse punishment than golfing. Is that still true? Oh, well, golf. My gosh, it's got to be really maybe the most popular game out, but. Uh, it uh, it it was uh, you need time to play golf and I just didn't, I've never had the time in uh, to to take the time to play golf because of of what I do every day. But boy, I have a lot of friends that are spend a lot of time golfing and they're very successful at their business. They're successful at golf, but I uh, I've preferred not to to take the time and that because it is a time-consuming sport so what do you do with your time then what's your hobby oh i don't know my hobbies uh, it's probably music in the most you know like on our boat we have a piano we have two pianos on our boat we have a organ on our boat we have a keyboard on our boat and we have uh, over the years, I've used the boat a lot for entertaining. Enjoy playing them. Yeah, it's. it's I don't play well, but I. <laughs> I bet you play better than me. No, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt I play better than anybody. But anyway, <laughs> I play f from time to time. I read one of the things that caught me in your book, and this is going back a lot of years because I know it was published, I believe, in '87, and I was born in '86, so. Uh, when I first got noticed that I was going to have this opportunity, of course, I went online, found your book, read it. Um, I know religion has played a huge part in your family. You had a part in there that talked about Oral Roberts and tent revivals. Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. And 
I read about it, and and, and essentially to the listener, uh, you went and saw him, and saw him heal people instantly in, in a tent, or relative. And you seem skeptical, or at least that's how the book reads. And so then in L.A., by chance, you see him, and you sit down with him, and you question him on it, and basically say, I don't believe you. And he invites you to one in L.A. And then you follow him to, he invites you out, you go with him to L.A., and you watch him again. No, I was in Los Angeles on business, and uh, I saw him in a restaurant having dinner early. It was 6 o'clock at night in the Statler Hotel, and uh, I saw Oral Roberts. He'd had a campaign in Vancouver, and I had gone to his campaign here, and uh, and I was very skeptical of of what he what he was talking about. So then here he was in the dining room all by himself, at and so anyway I I I went over to see him and and uh, introduced myself and said I'd been to his meetings in uh, Vancouver and he said what did you think and I said I. I was very skeptical. <laughs> I was very honest with him, and uh, so anyway, that's where I met him, and that's so, that. So when when you went and watched him the second time that night, though, out in L.A., you 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 followed up with a family for about six months after. Oh, it, well, longer boys. than that, maybe three or four years. So where where did you come down on that? Well, I was very impressed. Uh, I this this was. Uh, a, uh, a meeting that he had in Los Angeles, and I saw this. This was he was a faith healer, and uh, so when he invited me to come, I sat on the stage and uh, with him with about uh, forty, fifty other ministers. And uh, so when I saw this one particular fa- uh, family come up, that. That uh, that had their children uh, that was that that were deaf and dumb, uh, and then he prayed for them. I I jumped off the stage and followed them out to to see what it was all about, and and had a, came away with a very different opinion of them after following through. So you bl- believe it then? To, I well, I've I've met with the parents. I met with the Uncle I, and the relatives and these these children were born deaf and dumb, twins, and uh, and uh, so they they could they could sp- start to speak and for the first time, and I met with some of the relatives that night and then followed it. For we followed them, Marina. I came home and told Marina about this and. And uh, so we checked on them for years. After that, they lived up in up in uh, the the northwestern part of the United States. Followed through, but I was very impressed with what I saw. It was a, it was a miracle. So what what did you? How did that change? Like to see a miracle like that? Did that change anything in your life? No. It, I mean, I was always brought up in church and in uh, the Pentecostal uh, type of faith, and uh, they've always talked about Jesus healing people and and all of that. So anyway, uh, um, I always uh, had the the, the Christian uh, background uh, all my life. My parents. Who weren't initially uh, had had a lot of faith, but as time went by, they they uh, uh, turned to faith in uh, Saskatoon. And uh, then when they came out here, my dad worked in a Skid Road mission, and of course I were not maybe six blocks from here. My dad, I can take you there, where my dad and mother worked three nights a week all the time I grew up, and I played my trumpet and. And uh, played in the mission till I was 26 years old. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. Oh no, I was raised in a Skid Road mission, and when my dad died, uh, uh, and at the funeral, uh, which I put on for my dad, 
the place was the the church we had the funeral you couldn't get a seat it was sold out because it, it was all people from skid row that my dad's life had helped over the years in here in vancouver so i grew up in this skid row admission till i was i went with my parents till i was 26. then i was got married to mary and from moose john we started our own family so i switched to a church Before I get closer to the end here, I gotta ask about Looseland, Saskatchewan. Um, you've been out here a lot, a long time. What is it about Looseland that still holds a piece of your heart that you, um, you know, the story I heard, the, the number one story I heard coming here was Marilyn Monroe's dress. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe's dress. Marilyn Monroe's dress, yeah. Well, I bought Marilyn Monroe's dress. Monroe's dress is the most expensive dress in the world. And uh, we have it at Ripley's Believe It or Not. They, they show it and use it. To, you know, they have a lot of Believe It or Nots. And this is, believe it or not, this is the world's most expensive dress. And uh, I bought it because uh, for, I bought it for Ripley's, believe it or not. But then brought it to Looseland, Saskatchewan, of all places. Yeah, I did. That's exactly right. I brought it for to loose land, and then we t took it to the Savon store in Saskatoon, and and I think it went up. To, I'm not sure whether it went up to Prince Albert or not, but anyway, it's down in Orlando, Florida, right now. So, what is it about loose land, Saskatchewan, that still holds a piece of you? Well, that's where I later? was born. So, when I was born, my mother went in from loose land to to the hospital in Saskatoon, but that's where we lived. My dad was a postmaster there, and my mother was a school teacher, and that's where they met, and that's where I was born. So I always have a soft spot for Looseland. What's maybe one of the most influential people who's helped shape, shape your life? Oh, uh, would be my mother and father. Yeah? Certainly. Um my mother and dad would be a strong, strong influence. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was a person that I was fortunate enough to become a trustee of, of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and, and uh, a lot of things that Ronald Reagan uh, believed in and uh, followed uh, certainly uh, stuck with me. Um, he was uh, certainly a special person, Ronald Reagan. And I was fortunate enough to be exposed to the things he uh, believed in. And and I'm still a trustee of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation in Los Angeles. On May 2nd, 1986, is that the day the expo opens? That was the day it started. That's the day I was born. So oh, is that right? Yes, I, I read that. I probably had to read that about three times. Okay. Went, wow, isn't that interesting? You've already lived a life, and I'm just starting okay, mine. Boy, I remember. I remember that day as as if it was yesterday. I spent six years working for the for the government, dollar a year, and. Uh, I learned a lot about government, working with the, the B.C. government, the federal government, and a lot of other governments during that period. Was that, uh, well, that had to have been, that, that World Expo had to have been one of the biggest achievements, I assume, in your lifetime? Well, it was one of the most educational opportunities I've ever had because I traveled literally all a lot of the world and 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 a lot of things i met a lot of people through that learned a lot about government i, I got a i spent six years uh, three years part-time and then the last three t years i didn't come into my own office here in vancouver for three years i worked down on the site maureen chat who we talked about earlier came down every day 
with uh, the business things that I had to be dealt with. And uh, But the last three years, I worked full-time uh, at the fair or for art because we traveled a lot in those days. I don't want to hold you too much longer. I'm, uh, I know you're uh, a man who's uh, very busy, even at this day and age, which I think is spectacular. So let's move into the final five, just five uh, shorter as long as you like to go, Jim. Um, just five questions. Um, I know in reading about you, you don't watch TV for pleasure. You said there was only once upon a time there was only two movies you'd watch: Doctor Chivago and The Godfather. Have you watched any movies since? Oh, sure. I became a director of Paramount. As time went by, they asked me to go on the on the board of Paramount, which I did, and uh, and so I got to. I got to see a number of movies, of course, at Paramount movies yeah. and things. And uh, no, I learned a lot. I was I was on the board for a number of years, and and uh, I got certainly got a, a, learned a lot about the movie business uh, for a number of years. So, is there a movie that sticks out then that you enjoyed? Yeah, and I've forgotten the name of it. It was to do with submarines. <laughs> And uh, and I forgot the name of it now, but it was one of the Paramount movies, and boy, it was very interesting. But I forgot the name of it. Who was the actor? I can't tell you that either. Oh no, you're going to leave us all hanging. Yeah, now we're no, all wondering. I remember there was a, anyway. <laughs> it was it was interesting. I learned a lot about submarines. I remember that. How about uh, the first car you ever sold? What was it, and where was it? First car I ever sold was at Seventh and Burrard in Vancouver. Seventh and Camby and Burrard at this gas station that Fred Richmond had and it was a 39 uh, 39 uh, Plymouth do you remember any of the selling features you had no, for that? no I can remember nothing I was <laughs> I had my I was the wash man on the and I was allowed to speak to a customer because the salesman was off duty <laughs> or out selling a car and I was the only guy in the lot and I was allowed to speak to the customer and I sold the car, so that's uh, all I can remember. Did you give it a fist pump after that? Pardon? A fist pump. No, I don't even do fist pumps. I didn't even know what they were in those <laughs> days. What is your favorite car? My favorite car is a, is at my house now. It's a 75 Pontiac Convertible. And it's sitting at my house right now. And 70, 75, have you owned it since day one? Yep, day one. Drive it every year? I drive it every year. I don't drive it every day every year, yeah. but I drive it every year. Hmm. It's a convertible and, and a, a good day. I haven't driven it so far this year, but I'll drive it one of these days. If you could go back to your 20-year-old self and impart one piece of advice or wisdom on what piece of advice would you give yourself back then? Well, be honest and tell the truth. And uh, what's our foundation here is be honest. And uh, you've known that since day one. Though. Well, I was taught that from my parents by example. Yeah. Always tell the truth and be honest. And and uh, we, I've made every mistake in business, but the one I haven't made is. We've been uh, honest as we've made mistakes, but we've never been dishonest in any way, ever to my knowledge. You talk a lot about uh, getting to a mountaintop, and once you're there, the next mountaintop. You just <laughs> keep going. What is the next mountaintop for for yourself? Oh, heck, there's always new ones. Every every day, we'll, we don't know which the next one will be, but there will be another one. You've been around the world. And you have met, you know, I was just walking in your your lobby and looking at all the famous and historical figures you've met through your life. You've been privy to a lot of interesting conversations. If you could, is there one conversation you can go back to and be like, man, that was surreal. I can't believe I was sitting across from X and X and yeah. in the same room. Yeah, the answer is Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. And what was being talked about? 
Well, it was, they were just talking and I was included. And uh, here was, if you go back, the history, of course, was the Berlin Wall when, when the war was on and Ronald Reagan went to there and said, Mr. Gorbachev, well, this when I say the World War was on, there was the, the, the war between, if you like, Russia and America, the Cold War. And, uh, and Ronald Reagan went to the Berlin Wall, said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And, uh, and I had the opportunity of, of meeting Mr. Gorbachev with Ronald Reagan and with the piece of the wall. I'll show it to you the picture here afterwards. And that's probably one of the highlights of my life. Well, I really do appreciate you sitting down and uh, taking the time to meet with a small kid from the country. This has been just uh, pure enjoyment for me. Well, anybody from Saskatchewan is always more than welcome around here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hey, folks, thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time.